Right, we uh, returned to the Bible survey tonight, and uh, we've got up to 1 Corinthians, so um, we'll start that. We won't do it all tonight, but um, we'll, we'll at least make a start on 1 Corinthians. Um, so let's, let's, let's immediately get the background and everything that we need. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians around 55 AD. Now, we know that from 1 Corinthians 16 where it sort of places him in the final year of his three-year stay in Ephesus. And uh, you can locate that in Acts 20. We, we saw that when we were doing the Acts of the Apostles. Now, he'd actually planted this church in Corinth, um, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 18. And it's three years since his last visit to them. And what's happened is that people had brought news to him that much was wrong in this church. It's three years since Paul had been there, and news has come to him that much is wrong. Now, Paul had written to them earlier, and he wrote a letter that we don't have, all right? Uh, so whereas this is one, one Corinthians, really it's two Corinthians, but we don't have the first letter. But Paul had written to them and they have now written back to Paul with various questions for him and what we're going to see is that from chapter 7 onwards Paul deals one by one with the questions that they had written and asked him so what we've got here is a letter to the Corinthian church which has got into dire straits it's three years since Paul had visited it. Okay. Now let's let's just get get the background on Corinth itself. Corinth was a massive metropolitan city. It was one of the, if not the, chief city of Greece, and it was located in the southern part of Greece and was fairly near Athens. And one of the reasons that it was so important was that it was a, a major port and it had two harbours. So this was a place of major transit, uh, major commerce. And at the time when Paul was there, planting the church, it's very possible that the population could have been upwards of a quarter of a million free men and 400,000 slaves. So this was a big place. This was a, a, a cosmopolitan centre. Now, it was immersed in Greek you know, philosophy. Um, it prided itself on wisdom. The Greeks viewed philosophy as wisdom. That, that was their buzzword for it. And, um, you know, the Greek culture was very much into philosophy anyway. But Corinthia, you know, Corinth was especially so. And you tend to find this, don't you, that, uh, you know, you get major cities, they vie, you know, at the moment, Glasgow is vying to be one of the major centres of culture in Europe. And this has always been a feature of cities. And, and Corinth considered itself to be, you know, the, the centre of culture and philosophy of the day. Now, religiously, it had no less than 12 major temples. And one of these temples, and this explains a lot of the background of the letter that we're going to see, make a lot of sense of some of the problems in the church. 
one of these temples was the temple of Aphrodite and Aphrodite was the goddess of love and as part of the worship surrounding this temple was temple prostitution and it's uh, you know thought that there was anything up to a thousand priestesses in this temple who were actually prostitutes and sex and worship were combined in the temple and it was infamous for gluttonous love feasts the early church weren't the only people to have love feasts other religions did as well and the Corinthian love feasts were, were, were famous for being virtually gluttonous orgies drunken gluttonous orgies and uh, this is the background and the Greek culture of the time actually coined a new verb and the new verb that came into being was to Corinthianize and to Corinthianize became a Greek verb meaning to be immoral to practice immoral behavior so infamous was this city of Corinth and it actually became a byword of immorality and excess of every kind and this is the background this was where these people have been converted and the church that Paul is writing to was made up of a mixture of Greek and Jewish converts you'll find that the Jewish converts would have been relatively well behaved because they would have been guarding their Jewish background anyway even though they were located um, in Greek culture um, the immorality problems and stuff like that would have largely been coming from the Greek contingent in the church so this is the background this is Paul writing to a church it's a young church um, it's got loads and loads of problems and lots of these problems stem from the fact that it's in the midst of a culture that is dreadfully immoral and yet also dreadfully arrogant which in many ways makes it a you know sort of very you know good parallel to uh, life as we find it today it's a you know sort of um, obviously it wasn't anything like as big as for instance a London is now but uh, you know sort of like ancient world equivalent as it were so there's much in this letter that is very relevant to to the church today and uh, so let's let, let's dive in and um, chapter one and Paul opens up um, with greetings and in the the first three verses he, he just declares himself to be an apostle by the will of God this this will be important later there were people in Corinth who were trying to you know kind of like usurp the position that Paul had there and trying to make out that he wasn't a real apostle and so Paul opens up by saying look I am an apostle by the will of God I'm, I'm a real one and um, he, he sends the church his greetings now he also sends greetings from a bloke who was with him at the time in Ephesus called Sosthenes now we can't be absolutely sure who Sosthenes is but um, in Acts 18 um, when we have the account of when Paul was planting the church in Corinth uh, we have there uh, the simple fact that the leader of the synagogue in Corinth was called Sosthenes and if you remember he was the one who got beaten up the crowds got mad with Paul Paul scarpered and so they just grabbed the leader of the synagogue and they beat him up instead so it's possible it's possible that this Sosthenes is now traveling with Paul and Paul sends his greetings because possibly he's the same Sosthenes 
who came from Corinth in the first place. In which case he got converted. In Acts 18 he wasn't a Christian. If it's the same one it means that he's subsequently become a Christian and now he's travelling with, with Paul, um, you know, sort of like planting other churches and travelling around with him. And in these opening greetings Paul calls the Corinthians as believers sanctified. And he says, you are sanctified. And of course, as all Christians are. Now, we're, we're going to see Paul dealing with some quite outrageous sinful behaviour that they were getting up to. But he opens his letter by saying, you are sanctified. You are set apart for, for God. And that, that that is going to become important as we go through the letter. Uh, naughty though they were being, Paul writes and says, you're sanctified. It's, it's very upbeat, very positive. And he wishes them, as Paul always opens his letters, grace and peace. Now, in verses 4 to 9, he, he kind of writes down one of his prayers of thanksgiving, um, and, and he thanks God for them. Um, he thanks God for their knowledge, and he thanks God as well for their abundance of spiritual gifts. And uh, later on, as we progress, we're going to see that uh, there were certain problems in regards to the gifts of the Spirit as well. But Paul, you know, praises them. He, he says, I thank God that you have got an abundance of spiritual gifts um, amongst them. And then he, he assures them that, um, you know, that the Lord is able to keep them. He says, he's got you, all right, and because he's faithful, he's going to actually keep you. I'll actually read verse 8. And... Um, he says, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And that's lovely because Paul's saying, look, he's got you because you're Christians. And because he's got you, you can be absolutely sure that he will also keep you right until the end. Now, from verse 10 through the 16, he dives straight in now to one of the major problems. And we're going to see lots of major problems. But Paul dives in now. He addresses it, no messing about, and it's the problem of divisions. And what was happening is that the Corinthian church was breaking up because there were so many internal factions. You, you had different groups of Christians, little cliques in the church, and they were all warring with each other. And they were all saying, we're right, you're wrong. And this was, this was going on all over the place. And so what Paul is saying, look, when you divide up like this, you know, and you get little groups and you're against each other, he says this, this, this is division, it's factiousness, and he says it is pure immaturity. It is pure carnality. And he implores them to agree with each other and to be united and of the same mind. And what they were doing, because when you get divisions like this often, they get all a bit super spiritual. And you had some people, they were saying, well, look, I follow Paul. And there are other people who say, no, no, I, I follow Paulus. Um, other people were saying, I follow Cephas. That's Peter, Greek for Cephas. And of course, you always get the super spiritual group, oh, no, we follow Jesus, you see. And what they were doing, having all their fights, but they were dividing down. Now, the point was that neither Paul nor Apollos nor Peter were giving sanction to any of this at all. This was purely the excuse that these people, um, you know, were latching onto. And you've got all these divisions going on. 
and uh, you know, and Paul says this is this is crazy for you to be kind of lining up and dividing off on the basis of well, I'm for Paul or I'm for Apollos. And he says, look, I didn't die for you. He says, what are you doing lining up behind me and saying I'm with the Paul party? He says, I didn't die for you. And he says, I I I hardly baptised any of you either. And he says, how daft that you should be saying I'm in Paul's party or I'm in Apollos' party. And, um, you know, and Paul says, no, this must stop. There needs to be agreement. There needs to be unity amongst you. We're, we're going to see Paul coming back to this later on. Now, from verses 17 to 31, Paul underlines that he, he hadn't brought them words of human wisdom. What he's saying is all this dividing off into factions, he says this is human wisdom. He said this is nothing to do with the Lord at all. And he said, look, I didn't come to you with great human wisdom. I didn't come to you spousing the philosophy of the Greeks or anything like that. And he said, if I had it done, then that would have merely emptied the cross of Christ of its power. He says, I didn't come with you know all the long words and all the philosophy and stuff like that. And he says, look, the gospel sounds daft to those who reject it. They think you're nuts. He says, but the reason that the gospel sounds daft to people who reject it is because God uses the truth to bring man's so-called wisdom and cleverness to nothing. Of course, the point is all the philosophy of the Greeks, you know, sort of like, you know, the, the backdrop to this church. Paul's saying, it, it may all sound very good and highfalutin, but he's at the end of the day, it's mere words. I didn't come to you with all that. He says, I came to you simply telling you about Jesus. And, and, and he said, that sounds very unimpressive to people who want to be all philosophical about it. But he says, that, that's what I did. And then he says, look, the Jews want miracles, they want signs and wonders all over the place. And he says, and the Greeks want wisdom, by their philosophy. This is, this is what, you know, to, to make the Jews sit up and listen, you have to work miracles all over the place. To make the Greeks listen, you've got to get all the long words and stuff like that. And he says, but I came and I just preached Jesus and him crucified. And he says, and this is a stumbling block. He says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And what he's meaning by that is that the gospel preaching Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews. They thought it was dark. Because for them, the idea of Messiah suffering was a nonsense. I mean, they, they were wrong. Their Old Testament scriptures were full of a suffering Messiah. But they didn't believe that. So the gospel was kind of a stumbling block to the Jews because they couldn't come to terms with how could, Messiah, how could God become a man and then suffer. That, that was nonsense to them. And he said it was foolishness to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And the reason it was foolishness to the Gentiles is that Greek um, beliefs and philosophy had a, a, a total divide between matter and spirit. And it believed there were two universes that overlapped. There was the material one and there was the spirit one. And they, they taught in their philosophy that matter was evil and that what, what was important is that you find spiritual means to enter more and more into spirit. And, and they have various beliefs that you know you could go through certain cycles after death where you become less and less material and more and more spiritual. But the point was the Greeks believed that matter was evil. And this had two effects. 
for some of them, it made them kind of combat the idea by being very ascetic, very kind of denying their emotions, you know, like the Stoics, and very much, you know, denying pleasure. You know, they'd be celibate and stuff like that. They'd say, we've got to overcome the material body because it's evil, and we've got to deny all the senses and stuff like that. That was how some Greeks dealt with it. Other Greeks dealt with it, and this is where Corinth comes in, other Greeks dealt with it by saying, well, look, the body is evil, matter is evil, but we're stuck with it in this life, can't do anything about it, so it doesn't matter what you do in your body. And that was why so many of the Greeks were so immoral, because they said, well, look, we're stuck with it, nothing we can do about it. But therefore, given that the Greeks believed that matter was evil, the idea of God becoming a man was a nonsense to them. They said, no, God is spirit, God is good, how can God become material? because matter is evil. Now, of course, they're wrong about that. Matter isn't evil at all. God became a man. God created the material world. No problem. But this was why it was kind of, you know, uh, you know a, a, a nonsense to the Greeks. And, uh, you know, so, so Paul's saying, look, there you are, stuck in a society where everyone thinks you're nuts. Well, I mean, that's, that's the same for us today, isn't it? We're stuck in a society, they all think we're nuts. Different beliefs out there believe we're nuts for different reasons, but what they all have in common is they all think we're nuts. And we are nuts, but at least we're screwed onto the right bolt, so it really doesn't matter. And so what Paul is saying, it doesn't. I didn't come along pandering to all that. I came and I told you about Jesus. And of course, what he's saying is, so why are you following me? It was Jesus I told you about. He said, don't line up behind me and, and use me as an excuse to fall out with other Christians who are saying, oh, where for Peter? He says, I just came and I told you about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, he says, look, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And he said, God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. And he says, look, the truth is, the daftest thing God's ever done is wiser than the cleverest thing any man's ever done. And the weakest thing about God is far stronger than the strongest thing about any man. And we'll actually read verse 26 to 31, because this is great, this is brilliant. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And he says, look, you're all nothing. And he says it's brilliant, because he says what God uses, he first reduces to nothing anyway. And, you know, you're surrounded by this culture that thinks it's something, that thinks it's so clever. And he says it isn't actually, not at all. He says, but God specialises in taking the nothings and he uses them. And so what Paul is saying, put all that away. You know, all this dividing off. He says, that, that's all of the world. That, that, that's all of, you know, the arrogance of, you know, of the human mind. And, uh, and then what he goes on to, to say is that he says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, 
who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. And he says, look, Jesus is our everything. He says, Jesus is our righteousness, Jesus is our holiness, Jesus is our redemption, Jesus is our wisdom. He says, Jesus is everything. And of course, again, what he's saying is, so why are you claiming to be in the Paul party? He says, be in the, in the Jesus party. That's what the word Christian actually means. And he says, so there's no boasting. The only thing we can boast of is the Lord himself. And then as we move into chapter 2, he, he still carries on with this. And again, he says, I didn't come to you with all this lofty wisdom. Um, but he said, I came with the simple message of the cross. Because that's what saves. Not knowledge, not wisdom, not philosophy. Simply Jesus and him crucified. And he says that he also came to them in fear and trembling. He says, when I came amongst you, I was in fear and trembling. Paul was no great orator. I mean, it wouldn't have been a problem if he had have been, but as it happens, he wasn't. He, he wasn't a particularly good public speaker. There was nothing humanly impressive about Paul at all. And he says, but I came to you and I had the power of the Spirit. And he says, that what matters. And the important thing to get in that is that because Paul came and he wasn't impressive of himself at all. He just had the power of the Spirit. That meant that he brought people to depend on the Lord, not on him. That people would see the Lord through him, not him. And he says, he says, but I'm not saying that the gospel isn't wisdom. He says, I'm not saying that, you know, that God is actually stupid. What he's saying is that God's wisdom looks stupid compared to man's wisdom. But he says, but the truth is, it's God's wisdom that's true. It's man's wisdom that is actually stupid. And he says, but God's wisdom has now been revealed to us. And he said, we could never have come to know his wisdom. We could never have come to know the truth about God unless it had been that God had revealed it. And the thing about philosophy and human thinking and human wisdom is that you can deduce things all you like. Philosophers can philosophize all they like, but you could never, ever, ever deduce the truth about God and the truth about salvation from human logic. If you're to know that, it's got to be because God reveals it to you. So therefore, there's no room for pride in our intellect, because the truth about God is something that he has revealed. We didn't reach it. We didn't get there by our own thinking. We know the truth because God revealed it to us. And he says it's, it's quite different from the wisdom of the age. And he says human rulers just don't understand God's wisdom. You know, I mean, all the brilliant philosophers of the world, all the clever people, all the university lecturers, they don't know the beginning of God's wisdom. They might be clever in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes it's pure stupidity. You cannot humanly obtain the knowledge of God. And then he, he, he quotes from Isaiah a prophecy when Isaiah says that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the mind of man conceived what God has in store for those who love him. And the point is that everything that God has got in store for us, i.e. how we're going to be eventually in the eternal state when we're glorified, no eye has seen it, no ear has heard it, and no mind has conceived it. The senses of man, eye, ear, 
and his intellectual ability, the mind, just it's, we're totally and utterly blind to it. It's hidden from us unless God reveals it to us. And of course this humbles us. This is saying, you know, so you Corinthians, all this philosophy and that, forget it. Anything worth knowing of God is being revealed by the Holy Spirit. And what he goes on to say is, look, we know ourselves inside, and that's kind of like what you might call our spirit, the spirit of man. Right? Now, in the same way that, that each of us have self-awareness, we know ourselves on the inside, and Paul says, say we call that the human spirit. And he says, well, in exactly the same way the Holy Spirit reveals God to us. Because the Holy Spirit knows God fully on the inside, because he is God. He's part of the Trinity. And so in the same way that our spirits know us on the inside, the Holy Spirit knows God on the inside. And so the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth of God to us. And he says, unbelievers cannot even begin to understand it because it's spiritually discerned. To know the truth of the gospel, to know the truth about God, to know the truth about the Christian life and what it means to follow him is something that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's truth, it's a revelation that the Holy Spirit has given to us. And so that is why he says unbelievers cannot understand believers. They just can't do it. We will always be nuts to them. But you see, the other side of that is that crumbs, I know that they're the nuts. I know that I was the one who was stupid to not be living a Christian life. And now that the Lord by his grace has pulled us in and we are living the Christian life, we know now that that is the truth. And what we thought was truth before, whatever it was now, we can see that that wasn't in any way at all. And then again, Paul quotes from Isaiah just to demonstrate this fact that, you know, that there's, there's no way that the human mind can fathom the truth about God. All truth of God has to be revealed to us by his Holy Spirit. But he says, but we have the mind of Christ. And that's the incredible thing about it. Because Jesus lives in us through the Holy Spirit, we share the mind of Jesus. I mean, not, not exhaustively, obviously, but because we have access to the mind of Jesus, therefore we do understand the truth about God. But it is purely a gift of God's grace, not attained in any way at all by intellect, of, I mean, obviously, you know, one's got to work at it. We've got to do our bit to get to know the truth of the Bible. But at the end of the day, it's revealed by the Holy Spirit. It's not an attainment of the human mind. And then in chapter 3, having done that, he dives back in again on their factiousness. And, 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 and he tells them that it's, it's, it's a scandal. He says, look, this is proof that you're carnal. You're worldly. When you get the word carnal in the Bible, it's carnal worldly, i.e. you might be a Christian, but you're living as if you're a non-Christian, because all this divisiveness, all this factiousness, he says, that's what the wisdom of the world is all about. Look at the philosophers. Oh, I follow Kant. Oh, I follow Heidegger. Oh, no, no, I think they got that wrong. You know, blah, blah. And that's, that's all it is in the world. And Paul says, you must not be like it. And he says, you're, you're mere infants. 
he says that you should be coming into maturity and yet look all this fighting amongst you your infants he says you should be ready for solid food spiritually but he says you're still on milk you're, you're still infants at the breast and he says by now you should be mature and he says look this idea of following Paul or following Apollos he says it's crazy he says look Paul planted he says I planted and Apollos watered so he said I planted the church amongst you God used me to bring you into being then Apollos hung around and he got you going he taught you and stuff like that so he says I planted Apollos watered but he said who gave the growth he said God gave the growth I didn't, Apollos didn't, God did. So he says, so why are you following us? He says, look, me and Apollos, we were merely God's fellow servants. He says, you're God's servants, we're God's servants. What are you doing all this stuff about following us? And he says, look, he says, as the church, and he, he, he uses two pictures here. He says, look, you are God's field, so there's one picture of the church, like crop growing, and he says, you're God's building. And there's the picture of the temple. And he says, but Paul and Apollos, I mean Apollos, he says, we're just fellow workers among you. Because that's all we are. Jesus is the one you follow, not us. And he said, look, the foundation that I laid amongst you was Jesus. He said, that is the foundation. And he says, each one of us, having got that foundation, i.e. we've got Jesus in our lives, he says, we, we must build on that foundation. He says there are two ways of doing it. He says you can build with wood, hay and stubble. Now wood, hay and stubble is what's left when the harvest has been brought in. That, that represents, you know, just what we're doing for Jesus, us doing our own thing. That represents just purely, if you want, you know, the, the life of the flesh, merely human endeavour. That's no good. Or, he says, you can build with gold, silver and precious stones. Now in the Bible, gold always represents God the Father. Silver always represents what Jesus has done in redeeming us. And the precious stones always represent the Holy Spirit. So he says, or you can build on that foundation through what Jesus is doing through you. All right. And then he says that when, when the day of judgment comes, and he's talking here not about, you know, sort of judgment on sin, because of course we're saved, but one day that we'll, we'll stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and our service will be judged. And he says on that day, everything that we've done that's just wood, hay and stubble will be burned up. He said, no good. What you do for Jesus is no good. But he says that what God has done through us, that will remain the gold, silver and precious stones. And, uh, and, you know, that will, will last for eternity, all right, because it was what God was doing. And when we eventually get on to 2 Corinthians, we'll see Paul coming back onto that, that, that theme. Then he goes back to talking about them being the temple. He's already mentioned it when he called them a field and a building. And, uh, and he says, look, you, you are God's temple, all right. Now, the context here in the Greek is that he's talking to them corporately. The you is plural here. And he says, look, you corporately, as a church, are God's temple. And he says, and the Holy Spirit lives in you. All right? Because that's what a church is. It's where Jesus lives. It's, it's his home, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are, as a church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives amongst us corporately. Okay. 
Now, what he then says, and if anyone destroys that temple, God will destroy him. And what he's talking about, I mean, this is the verse people say, oh, no, you mustn't smoke. <laughs> now, that's not the context here. So it's not talking about an individual human body. What God is saying, this factiousness is destroying you as a church. And he says, those of you who are doing this, God will judge you. He will be destroyed. And of course, when Paul comes on later to deal with the love feast, he actually tells them um, that some of them, amongst them, were actually becoming ill and dying as a result of God's judgment on them because of, of all the many wrong ways in which they were behaving that, that was destroying the unity of the body. And so what Paul is saying, your unity, you must guard it at all costs. And so he says, look, don't deceive yourselves anymore. I, I, and he's me all this stuff about they're being factious, but they're justifying it. You know, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. He says, look, don't, don't deceive yourselves about this anymore. He says, look, those of you who think you're wise, it's time for you to become fools in order to become wise. He's saying all you clever clogs in the Corinthian church falling out with each other over this, that and the other. He says it's time for you to become a bit daft now. Become like me. Don't worry about all that clever stuff. And he says, and if you are prepared to humble yourself and become foolish, inverted commas, he says then you'll actually come into the real wisdom of God. Then you'll be a proper clever clogs in the Lord, as it were. And so he says, right, okay, let this end. And he says... Don't let there be any more boasting regarding men, all this homing in on the leaders. I follow this leader, I follow that leader. And he says, all this, I the leaders, he says, all of them belong to all the church anyhow. So when he's saying about you saying, oh, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, he says, well, we don't just belong to the Corinthian church anyway. He says, well, we belong to anyone who wants us. So you don't have exclusive rights on us anyway. But he says, look, all us leaders belong to all the church anyhow. And he says, and everything belongs to Jesus in any case. And so what he's saying, we don't belong to you, we belong to Jesus. And he's saying, you don't belong to us, you belong to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. And of course, what he's saying, look, we are all equal. And this is one of the big mistakes that the church has made in regards to leadership, that it switched very early on into a kind of a clergy laity divide, a kind of a, you know, that the leaders led from above or something. That's rubbish. In the Bible, leadership is from within. It's a servant leadership. It's not shepherds over sheep as if the shepherds aren't sheep as well. A shepherd is a sheep leading from within by example not some authority because of some position over people. And Paul says, you're falling into this error. He says, look, we're all equal, us leaders as well. We're no one special. So he says, stop all this emphasis on leaders. I'm with this, that, or the other. So he says, let there be no more partisanship. You should all be agreeing. Now in chapter four, he, he moves on to, to deal with the problem that there were people in the church who were casting doubts on whether or not he was a true apostle in the first place. Now these doubts had partially come from within the Corinthian church and partially from without. So Paul had a problem, he plant churches 
and there'd always be wandering so-called leaders who'd want to move in on a church and take it over, all right? And then they, they try and say, Paul's not a real apostle, blah, blah, blah. So what, what Paul does now is he deals with this thing that they were under influences that were saying, well, don't take any notice of what Paul says anyway. He's not a genuine apostle in any case. Because you've got to bear in mind that this church only exists because Paul was used by God to bring it into being. So there was a certain unarguable nature about it, whether Paul was a genuine apostle or not. After all, the church wouldn't have, have, have come into being um, unless um, Paul had actually been used by God to do it. And so what he says is, look, on this issue as to whether or not I am a genuine apostle, and he says, I've told you that I am, all right, but he says, ultimately, you've got to decide this as a church. But he says, when you decide it, you must decide it on the basis of my faithfulness. He says, at the end of the day, only the Lord really knows if I'm an apostle or not. But he says, you've got to come to a judgment on it. But when you do, make sure that you come to that judgment on the basis of his faithfulness to God. Because remember, their temptation was to view it, is he a good speaker? Is he knowledgeable? Is he, is he all this, that and the other? And all that is the world's way of viewing it. And what he says, look, he says, Apollos and I, the two of us, we have been examples to you of how to live and then it, by what is written. Obviously meaning, of course, the scriptures. And he says, we've also been examples to you in how to be impartial in our dealings with people and not to, to, to vault some over others. You know, I said we, we haven't liked some and disliked others. We haven't caused the divisions amongst you. And he says, look, God has given all of us whatever we've got anyway. So he says, we're not special. He says, so get that underlined. When I'm saying I'm an apostle, I'm not saying that I'm special. I'm just saying that God has called me to do that. And he says, this is how you're going to test me. He says, look, me and the other apostles, all right, he says, we, we have put up with bad treatment and persecution and suffering way above what others go through. And he says, these, these other guys who want you to think that they're the apostles, not us, he says, they haven't suffered like we have. So he says, so judge us on our suffering. And what he does is Paul says, look, we have been made a spectacle amongst men. That's the word he uses. And he says, and we've become as the scum of the earth. Now he says, that's what I've got for my trouble in being an apostle. Not some important position, haven't made loads of money or anything like that. All, all that it's been to us is suffering, persecution and trouble. And he says, that, judge for yourself. So that's what Jesus got. So which has the ring of truth, us or people who haven't had to suffer for Jesus? All right. And then he goes on to say, he says, look, and it's true that you only have one father in the Lord. He says, at the end of the day, you're only saved because of me. I, I fathered you in the Lord. And, uh, and he says, so therefore, you must imitate me as your example. And he's saying, of course I'm an apostle. And the proof of it are my sufferings. The example that I've given you and the fact that I've had a jolly hard time of it. I haven't had an easy time, I haven't, you know, sort of like got anything out of you or anything like that. He says, that is the proof that I'm genuine. And then he says, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Timothy to you really soon. 
I says, I want to get back to you myself. He says, I can't at the moment, but I'm, I'm going to send Timothy to you very soon. But he says, but when I do get there myself, he says, I will sort out the troublemakers. He says, have, have no bones about that. He says, when I get there, he says, I will be having words with these people who are stirring up all this trouble. And then he says, he says, shall I come with a whip or in love? So what he's saying, if you've got this sorted out before I've come, I can just come in love and we can get on with edifying each other. But he says, if you haven't got this sorted out, he says, I'm going to have to do some tough talking with some people. But he says, but it will become clear who really does have the authority of apostleship. And he says, what I'll do is I'll find out whether these people are just talk and no power. See? And Paul says, I've shown you the power of my Christian life. You've seen the example of my Christian life. He says, these other guys, they're just talkers. He says, anyone can talk. And he says, when I get there, we'll find out whether they've just got talk or whether they've got the power as well. And of course, it's a rhetorical point because Paul knew that they were just talkers. That's all they were. Now, in chapter 5, he deals with a situation that has arisen. Remember, he's had reports from the church and he's written to them earlier. And, um, and a situation here involving the discipline of the church. And what they had was they had a guy in the church who was uh, kind of having sexual relations with his father's wife. So we've got a situation here that either this guy is living with his mother or his step-mum, probably the latter. But the point is, here's a guy in the church who has moved in with his dad's wife and he's living with her. Now, the point is that that situation was outrageous even to the Corinthians. So whatever stuff the Corinthians will get up to, Paul gave them a little bit more leeway on, for instance, their immorality and going to the prostitutes. Because after all, the Greeks amongst them, that was their normal day-to-day -day life before they got saved. Now, Paul sorts them out on it, but he gives them a little bit more leeway. But this instance, this guy who's actually moved in with his dad's wife, even the Corinthians, the old unbelievers looking on, said, oh, that's wrong, we won't put up with that. Now, what Paul is saying is, by now, you should have excommunicated him. What are you doing permitting this in the church? And he castigates them for not using a discipline on this bloke. And he says, this man is to be put out of the church. Excommunicate him. And Paul describes this as him being handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I.e. that he's to be put out of the church and therefore he loses the protection of being part of the church. Satan can have him. And the idea is that through all the difficulties and all the shame that he goes through by being shunned by the people who he was previously in fellowship with, because they will not have fellowship with him, the idea is to make it hard for him to carry on in his sin. And, and hopefully that, he'll, that life will get so hard for him that he'll repent then he can be welcomed back into the church. So that's the situation that Paul is dealing with here. And he says, look, you've got to realise that a little yeast, you only need a little bit of yeast, and it goes through the whole batch of dough. And the thing about yeast in the Bible was that it's only a tiny little bit, but it affects the whole lump. And Paul reminds them that Jesus was their Passover lamb. And, um, and remember 
that um, at the feast of the Passover, the day before the feast, the Jews had to um, go throughout the house and, and hunt down any yeast that they might be and throw it out. And that was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you spent the day making sure there was no yeast in the house, and if there was, you threw it out. Then you eat that bread, and then the next day was the Passover. And of course, what the, the picture of this is, is that in order to carry on in fellowship with Jesus as our Passover lamb, there's got to be a genuine repentance from sin anyway. We've got to get rid of the yeast. That's the whole point. You can hardly say, well, I'm, 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 you know, sort of like, I'm in fellowship with Jesus and the Passover lamb, if we've got loads of yeast, as it were, in our lives that's un, undealt with. And so what Paul is saying, look, if you've got unrepentant sin in the church, it will go through the whole church and it will destroy it in the same way that yeast will affect a whole loaf of bread. And uh, so he says, you must deal with this man and put him out of the church. But he then reminds them that in his previous letter that he wrote, that he was saying that they weren't to have anything to do with Christians who are in unrepentant sin. The church had got a bit, you know, sort of like, you know, they'd misunderstood this and they thought that Paul was saying you mustn't have anything to do with Christian, with unbelievers who are in unrepentant sin. Paul says, no, I wasn't meaning that. I'm saying if you've got believers in unrepentant sin, you mustn't have fellowship with them. You must put them out of fellowship. So he says, you know, that's what I was saying. He says, I wasn't meaning unbelievers. And he says, you can't, you can't put them out of fellowship or you'd have to go out of the world itself. So what Paul is saying, that in the church, unrepentant sin, there comes a point when if people will not repent, they must be put out of the church as with this bloke who was living with his father's wife. And what Paul says, look, we, we have no concern judging those outside of the church, but he said, you are to judge those inside the church. Because this is all this stuff, oh, you mustn't judge, you mustn't judge, is crazy. Jesus' teaching about not judging was hypocritical judgment. It was that you have no right to point out a speck in your brother's eye if you've got a log in your own. But here, Paul says, Christians must judge each other. We are accountable to each other. And if there is rampant, continuing, ongoing, undealt with sin in someone's life, then eventually a discipline from the church must be brought to bear. And he actually quotes Deuteronomy from the law in the Old Testament about, you know, sort of people who wouldn't repent of various sins there. And he says, expel the wicked man from among you. So that's, that's tough stuff. But he was saying, but that's what you've, you've got to be prepared to do. And, uh, and remember that Jesus' teaching as well was exactly the same, that if the brother who's in sin will not repent, he says, let that go before the church. If, if after all the approaches they still won't repent and it's clear that they are guilty of that sin, he says, then treat them as a tax collector or um, outcast. So have nothing to do with them. Do not even eat with such a one. And, um, you know, sort of like there are, there's a, there's a great fear amongst Christians of practicing this today. But it's absolutely vital. It's at the heart of church life. If a church doesn't have what you, I suppose, what you might call some kind of policing method, 
Satan will simply destroy it from the inside because sin will become rampant. And if there's not a discipline there, either what happens is the church will be ripped apart by undealt with sin, or you'll just become the kind of church where anything goes. You know, and you all kind of hang back and, you know, you don't, don't get too close to each other and, you know, it just becomes like a club. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, remember, we're talking here about rampant, serious, undealt with sin over a, l a period of time, okay? Um, you know, we're not talking about, you know, sort of like an incentive scheme to holiness whereby one sin and you're out. We're not talking about that. This, this is severe stuff, but it's got to be there. We have had occasion in this church to use it, and uh, it's completely a biblical thing to do, however much churches shy away from it. But it's in the Word of God, it's vitally important. And here Paul is saying, look, you've got to be tough on undealt with sin when you've got it to this degree amongst you. Now in chapter 6 he moves on to yet another problem. This is just one problem after another. I mean, be encouraged. Be encouraged, you know. I mean, it's not... People often talk about Let's get back, you know, if only we could get back to the New Testament church, as if somehow the New Testament church was victory all the way. Crumbs, the New Testament church wasn't victory all the way. How can it be? The church is made up of redeemed sinners. So of course it's one problem after the other. The beautiful thing is, though, that to be a biblical church doesn't mean you don't have problems, but when the problems come up, they're dealt with biblically, and this is what Paul is saying. So another problem that they had in the Corinthians church was they, they were, in their business dealings with each other, they were basically conning each other. They were defrauding each other. They were fiddling each other. And what was happening is that one person had been conned by another person in the church and they were taking them to the civil courts. So they were actually going before secular magistrates um, in order to sort their affairs out. Now, what Paul is saying, he says, that is wrong. He says, the church should not take its problems before unbelievers. He said, that is outrageous that, unbelie that believers are parading their problems before unbelievers. He said, it's crazy. He says, these things are to be sorted out within the context of the church fellowship. Not taken. Now, we're not talking um, here criminal law. We're talking about civil law. I mean, if, if, if you, you know, sort of like, you know, go, go home one night and you find that your house has been burgled, all right, and the only giveaway as to who did it was that my Bible's sitting there because it fell out of my pocket as I carried your TV out the door. Well, if you know that a Christian has burgled you, you phone the police, of course. That's a criminal matter. This is civil stuff, not criminal stuff, it's civil stuff. And what Paul is says, look, you ought to be prepared to be defrauded before you take your problems to unbelievers. So he says, all right, let's say someone in the church has conned you out of some money in a business transaction. He says, if you want that money back, you pursue it through the church. You take that to the eldership of the church. Have him up before them. Let the church judge. He says, but you don't go to civil courts. And if the answer is, well, I'll never get me money. Well, the answer is, your money is not as important as unity. See? 
So he says, better that you're defrauded than end up carrying a brother to court. Now, obviously, if you've done business with someone in the church and they con you, the other lesson you learn is you don't do business with them again. Obviously, it don't mean that we've got to be gullible idiots. But what he's saying is that regardless of what problems might emerge amongst Christians, you do not take that before unbelievers. And one of the scandals um, of, of well, I say Christianity today, but I'm sure it's always been there. And we've seen this, and it's, it's, it's widespread. And I've seen it in people from other churches as well. They, they may well have had problems with their churches. They may, there may well have been fallings out, okay. But they, they, they parade it before unbelievers. I mean, that is to do nothing except to virtually ensure that those unbelievers aren't going to be saved. Because they're just going to think, what's a bunch of hypocrites? You know, oh yeah, you're saying you too can be like me. And here you are, bitching about your fellow brothers and sisters. That's not how to get people saved. And Paul says it is outrageous. You do not take family problems because problems between Christians are family. You don't parade family problems to the neighbours and you don't parade church problems in front of unbelievers. Remember Paul has said unbelievers can't begin to understand. They're carnal. They don't have the Holy Spirit. And it, it is such a bad witness. And so Paul says, look, it's better to be defrauded than to take these problems between Christians to unbelievers. And he says, look, he says, after all, one day, he says, we're going to judge the world. Now he's talking there about the thousand-year reign of Jesus, when we will actually rule the world with Jesus for a thousand years. And then he goes on to say, he says, don't you know that we're going to judge angels? I'm not quite sure what that refers to, but it sounds good to me. And he says, so for heaven's sake, will you get this right now? And sort out your problems within the family. All right. And let's, let's actually read verses 9 to 11 here. This is so important. And he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's pleading with them. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, because some of them were carrying on with that, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not there saying that you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. Do you remember um, in Acts of the Apostles, I think it was, uh, I can't remember where it was, but the church went to one place. And what they were preaching was, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So here, talking about the kingdom of God isn't talking about getting in as in being born again. Because in the Acts of the Apostles, the church didn't say, how do you get saved? Well, it's by believing on Jesus and then going through many tribulations. What they're saying is that, what, that, that given that we are saved, we progressively enter into the kingdom of God. I, the rule of Jesus becomes progressively more and more in our lives. And so what he's saying here, he's saying that if you hang on to all those, all those kinds of sin in your life, he says, don't be surprised if you don't grow. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. You will not come into the blessing 
and the victorious life that God has got for you in Jesus if you carry on with all that kind of sin. And, and so he says basically, stop it. You know, slap on the wrist. He says, stop it. And look what he goes on to say. And this brings us back to what I said right at the beginning. He says, look, and that is what some of you were. All right, he says all, all that kind of sin. He says, look, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, when you've got a church full of people committing adultery and dragging each other to court, you might in one way say, well, they don't seem very sanctified to me. And in that sense, experientially, you'd be right. But Paul says, look, you are sanctified. And of course, what he's saying is, look, will you start being what you are? He says, all this sin that you're carrying on with, he says, that's what you were. He says, you're Christians now. He says, will you please be what you are? And, and just put a stop to all that. So that's the thing about sanctified. And it applies to us as well. We're Christians. We are washed. We are sanctified. We've got everything we need in Jesus. So really, what the Bible says to us is, stop it. <laughs> you know, don't be what you were. Be what you are. And that is what the Christian life is. It's becoming more and more what we actually are in Jesus. Now, he then turns to the Christians who are still going down to these love feasts and going to the temple prostitutes and that. And, um, and what they were saying, they were saying it's okay, everything is permissible. The, these were the guys who were into grace, you know, sort of like we're not under law, we're under grace. And they were saying it's okay, it's permissible, it doesn't matter if we keep doing that. And what Paul says, now that all, all, all this being immoral, blah, 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 he says, look, everything may be permissible, but not everything is good. And what he does is he says, look, let's take an example of food. And that's what he now does. And he says, look, even food, and he says, food is permissible. No one's going to argue that food is wrong. But he says, look, if it's true that even food, which in itself is good, can master you, i.e. you can have a lack of self-control about food, you could even become a gluttonous person. So what Paul is saying, even food, which in itself is good, even that can master you when it shouldn't, all right? So he says, how much more ought you to avoid being sexually immoral, which is another appetite, all right? The sexual urge is an appetite like hunger, like thirst. And Paul says, look, this argument that you're saying it's a-okay, he says, I can demonstrate very simply that it's not a-okay at all. He says, look, if even food which is good can become your master and take you over, how much more immorality? which is bad. How much is that going to take you over? And he says, for heaven's sake, stop doing it. And of course, the thing is that all the time they're getting more and more addicted to it. Oh, I'll just go down the temple one more time. And, you know, and Paul's saying, no, look, this, this has got to stop. And what he argues is, he says, look, we are one with Jesus. We're one in spirit with Jesus. Now, he says, therefore, all right, given that one day that our bodies are going to be glorified. We're one with Jesus now, but one day our bodies are going to be glorified. They're going to be raised up, just like Jesus is. He says, 
how can you therefore take that body and become one flesh with a prostitute? He says, this, that is just beyond the pale. And it's interesting, the one flesh act is not just within marriage. Now, when a man and wife make love, that is legitimate, that's valid, and they become one flesh. But here, Paul says, if you're immoral, you're still becoming one flesh. And something spiritual is happening. But, of course, the dangerous thing is that here, it's something demonic that is happening, not something of the Holy Spirit. So he says, to take your body, which is one day going to be glorified, just like Jesus is, and to become one flesh with a prostitute, within the context of an immoral thing that you're doing, he says, no, that is, that is not on at all. You can't be one with the Lord and one with someone in a relationship sexually that is not a permissible thing, all right? And what he does, he says, look, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw early, he said, as a church, corporately, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that was, that was a corporate you in the Greek. But here, he addresses them as individuals. And he says here, look, our bodies, and he's talking about each one of us as individuals. He says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All right? Individually, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, immorality is the one sin against the body. He says, if you commit immoral acts, you are sinning against your body. And he says, no way. That must not be the case with Christians. And let me actually read verses 19 to 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God has given us the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And listen to this. He says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. And what he's saying, look, it's not your body. He says it's the Lord's body. It's his temple. We belong to Jesus, lock, stock and barrel. How can you therefore, with that body that belongs to Jesus, attach it to an immoral thing with a prostitute or whatever? And he says, absolutely not. Sexual purity has got to be the way for the Christian. Now in chapter 7, and on a similar note, he turns now to the issues that they've written to him about. And from this point onwards, throughout the rest of the letter, he's answering now one by one problems that they have put to him. And in chapter 7, he turns to various questions about marriage. And um, what they've done is they've written to him, they said, is it best to be married or is it best to be single? And basically, in chapter 7, what Paul does is he, he argues, he says, look, if you can refrain from marriage, great, okay? But if you can't, then make sure that you have a really good sex life. And that is his argument in 1 Corinthians 7. And he, he, he completely... Um, you know, sort of destroys the age-old chauvinist myth that somehow the wife is, you know, the woman is a sexual chattel for the man. Because what he says is, look, he says, the husband's body belongs to the wife. And the wife's body belongs to the husband. 
And he says, in the marriage partnership, your bodies belong to each other to meet each other's sexual needs. So what he's saying is, if you can refrain from marriage, that's great. If you can't, then make sure you have a good sex life. There's nothing anti-sex in the Bible. The Bible is anti-immoral sex. And Paul Archer, he says, look, some have the gift of marriage, and he says others have the gift of celibacy. But he says, nevertheless, if you're unmarried, even if you think you've got the gift of celibacy, rather than to actually risk being immoral, if you think that, that, that it's going to lead you into being immoral, then he says it's better to get married. So, obviously, for single people who think, no, I'm just not going to make it as a single man, pray for a partner. And then he, he deals with the divorce issue, and he said, look, married people mustn't divorce, all right? So he's dealt with the single, and he said, the unmarried, stay unmarried if you can, but if you can't, pray that you'll get married, all right? Now he deals with the married people. He said, look, married people, you mustn't divorce, all right? And, um, and what he actually says is that this is the Lord's command and not his. And the reason he says that is because Jesus covered the divorce issue um, in the Gospels. So we had Jesus' explicit teaching that divorce should only be through adultery. Okay. So now Paul is saying, if you're married, don't you know, split up at all. And he says that is the Lord's command and um, you know Jesus covered that in his teaching and so he's dealt with the married uh, sorry he's dealt with the unmarried and he's dealt with the married and then he says to the rest I say and, and, and you think sorry to the rest who's left he's dealt with the unmarried he's dealt with the married and then he says to the rest of you you think well who's left you're either married or unmarried aren't you and there's a third category that he deals with and he deals with the problem of people were in the Corinthian church who had got saved, they were already married. And they'd become Christians, but their partners weren't Christians. And so the question arose, if they're not a Christian and they're not following the Lord, do I divorce them? And this is what Paul deals with. And what he says, if you're in that position where you've become a Christian, and you've ended up now being married to a non-Christian, he says, you must not end that marriage. No way, not in a million years. But he says, but if your now non-Christian partner wants to dissolve the marriage because they can't bear living with a Christian, he says, if it's the case that the non-Christian partner wants to end the marriage, then he's saying, allow that. Don't fight it, let them. And he says, if you end up in that instance that your non-Christian partner has divorced you because they can't bear you being a Christian, then he says, if it's that they have divorced you and you haven't done it, he says, if they have divorced you, then you are free to remarry. Only, of course, he says, only in the Lord, obviously. You can only marry a Christian. And he says, but stay in there if you can. You mustn't end the marriage because, for all you know, your husband and children might become Christians. So he says, you mustn't end the marriage. But if the non-Christian wants to, well, okay, fine, there's nothing you can do about that.
and of course the reason he says that, that this is this is me and not Lord is because Jesus didn't cover that eventuality in his teaching and now Paul is so it's not saying that was merely Paul's opinion it's just saying that the word of the Lord was coming through him in that regard as opposed to the blatant teaching from Jesus himself in regards to divorce in general and then he enunciates a principle which should underline all our thinking in regards to God's guidance and any question as to how God might be leading us. And the basic principle is this, that Paul says, look, once you become a Christian, the basic principle is that whenever there's any doubt about what God's guidance may or may not be, the principle is that you should stay as you are. Now, obviously, when it comes to God's guidance, there are certain things in the Bible that are black and white. So if someone becomes a Christian, all right, and um, you know, and their job is, uh, you know, let's say they're a stripper in some bar, okay? Well, I mean, it's obvious God's guidance for them is to get another job, all right? But there are many things in life where there's not chapter and verse. And what is God's guidance? And the principle is, Paul says, remain where possible as you are. And he says, are you circumcised? He says, right, okay, don't, don't try and become uncircumcised. He says, are you a slave? He says, don't try to become free, necessarily. And he says, but if you can, do. But he says, don't make a big thing out of it. And the principle is always to be content in the Lord, whatever your status is. And to only make changes from your current circumstances when you know, beyond doubt, that it genuinely is God's will for you to do so. And so this is what he's saying. The general principle with guidance is don't make changes until you're really positive that the Lord is leading you to do so. And then going back to marriage, he, he advises, and there's a little thing here that's very important. He says, because of the present crisis, and he's talking about localised persecution that was going to come on the um, Corinthian church. And so this is not now a principle that applies through all ages. Paul now goes on to say what he does in the light of the present crisis, all right? And what he's saying is, it's, he advises the unmarried to stay unmarried. He says, it is much better in view of the present crisis that you remain unmarried. And he says, but nevertheless, if you can't handle it, okay, get married. But he says, in such circumstances as are going to come upon you, it's better that you don't get married because life is going to be easier. And he goes on to say, indeed, in the circumstances that are coming, the married are going to have to live as if they're not married in any case. And so he says, it's better if you remain as I am and don't marry. Now, of course, the point is he's talking about persecution coming. And so he's saying to them, you're going to come into a time of being persecuted so he says those of you who are unmarried at the moment he says my advice is this isn't a good time to think about getting married and he says if you're put in a situation it's much easier for a single man than it is for a husband who's been separated from his wife and family because of persecution so Paul is simply advising in the light of the present circumstances that they don't um, you know sort of like get married unless they really need to but he, he he says but again 
if 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 you know that celibacy if it's making you immoral then he says much better that you get married okay and then he deals with widows and um men who have lost their wives and he says you're free to remarry those you know whose whose partners have died he says you're free to remarry of course only in the lord it's got to be a christian christians can't marry non-christians that's wrong um but, but, but Paul still says, but nevertheless, in view of the present crisis, my advice is that you stay single. Because when you're undergoing the persecution, it will be easier for the single people. And then in chapter 8, uh, Paul moves on to deal with food sacrifice to idols. Now this is um, uh, something that we'll be coming back to in um, a later talk. And what he's saying is that there of people who still believe in the church that idols are real and therefore their conscience won't allow them to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now he says we know that idols are nothing so there's no problem you're free to eat food that is sacrificed to idols it doesn't matter but he says for these believers in the church who for them it's a point of conscience then go along with them don't whatever you do force them to go against your conscience so when you're on your own fine but if you're with them don't eat the food offered to idols because if you do you're actually encouraging them to go against their conscience and so you must do nothing to force or encourage or tempt people to go against their consciences in these gray areas i mean in romans 14 we saw vegetarian um you know people want to keep sabbath days these are things, if people, if their consciences make them want to do it, fine. They're not necessary, but if a weak conscience makes someone want to observe it, then don't prevent them from doing so. Don't make them stumble, okay? So therefore, Paul's saying, you stronger ones, you know you can eat meat offered to idols, fine. But the weaker ones can't. So do it on your own, but if you're with them, go with them. Don't make them go against their consciences. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see that Paul comes back to that point in a later chapter, um, and, and we'll see that next time. So we move into to ch chapter 9, and uh, he, he, he kind of deals with, with, with the whole, the, the false teachers and the troublemakers who were trying to undermine his apostleship. You know, they were casting aspersions on him, uh, trying to get Paul out of the way so they could, as it were, kind of move in and take over. So Paul had to defend his, his calling. And uh, what he turns to now is that clearly these guys were casting aspersions on his honesty in regards to finances. Now, Paul kind of, you know, sort of starts off by, you know, saying, look, he was an apostle because he had seen Jesus. And uh, he, he had got his teaching from Jesus himself just the same as the other apostles had done so, uh, done as well. And, uh, you know, and, and he says that their very existence as a church kind of proved that. And, and he then turns to this finance thing. And remember that what's happening is that people are trying to say, look, Paul is, is, is wrong in regards to finances. There's something bodgy about him. Now, what he does is that he establishes that, um, that as someone who was clearly, uh, you know, had a calling to plant churches and, and to do the kind of stuff he does, he establishes that, that he clearly had every right in the Lord to not do a secular job and to not provide for himself. And uh, he establishes this, and he says, look, soldiers don't serve at their own expense, 
Uh, he says vineyard workers get to eat of the grapes, and he says look, shepherds drink the milk of the flock. And then he quotes the law of Moses, and and you know where it says do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And he's applying this and saying, look, if there are people who have been called into full-time ministry, then that's okay. If God has called them, it's okay for them to be provided for by the brothers and sisters in the churches or whoever is led of the Lord to provide for them. So we see here that full-time ministry is okay. And Paul establishes this. And he says, look, you know, he and, and, and his associates had sown spiritual seed amongst them. So therefore, what's the problem if they reap material harvest from them? But what he then goes on to say is to remind them, in the light of these accusations, that he'd waived these rights that he and Barnabas had served for free. They didn't accept any money from anyone. And Paul, you know, they worked, uh, you know, so here they were kind of doing two jobs. They were, you know, kind of uh, doing secular work to provide for themselves and then doing the work, as it were, of the ministry in their spare time. Remember, they were single, uh, you know, so it's okay for them to do it. You, you, you know, it's very, very different, um, you know, if you were a family man. And, uh, you know, but Paul says, look, on what basis could there be any complaint against me concerning money? He says, firstly, it's okay to be full-time and to not have a secular job. But then he says, but as it happens, I've been providing for myself. I've been working. So I haven't received any money from the churches. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's another example of what we saw when he, in chapter 8, doing the, the, you know, when he was talking about food offered to idols, that legitimate rights are waived uh, out of love and for a higher purpose. And so here, basically, you know, Paul is saying, uh, but I haven't accepted any money from you. I could have done, it wouldn't have been a problem. If there were people who wanted to give, um, that would have been fine. But I have done a, a full-time job. I've provided for myself and for my friends. So in that sense, what, you know, what kind of problem is there financially? So at least that tells us two things. It tells us that there is full-time, you know, there are full-time workers. However, just say quickly that neither does the church pay salaries or anything like that. So to that extent, I mean, if someone is called full-time, let them just get on with it, finance what they're doing themselves, and then just trust the Lord to provide. And, uh, you know, sort of like no no salaries, no 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 prayer letters and hints for money, no making your needs known, just, just kind of step out and just trust the Lord to, to provide. And uh, Paul goes on to, to say, look, that, that he'd made himself a slave to all, that, that to the Jews he became a Jew, um, to a Gentile he, he became as someone who wasn't under the law. So what he's saying is he becomes all things to all men. You're not saying uh, that in any sinful way. I mean, if you're with it, you know, if you're with immoral people, you don't become immoral. But the point is that, that, that nothing is too much trouble for him if it means people's salvation, that Paul would go to any length, make any compromise as long as it didn't actually go against the word of God, would do everything in his power to accommodate people in order to make it easier for them to receive the truth of the gospel. And he uses the um, example or the picture of an athlete and, you know, saying how he can't, you know, like a 
boxer, he trains his 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 body and that he, he keeps it under under control. It's a picture of an athlete training, a, a boxer in training. And he says in order to win the race and to get the prize. And he said, you know, sort of that after I've preached to others that I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. He's talking about losing salvation. He's not talking about his salvation, but he's talking about that he might lose out on the reward one day that he'd receive for good and faithful service to the Lord. Right, we continue next time.